And I thought all of those people were superheroes. I thought those dudes were too. Wow. But then I started seeing in my class, like Black History Month, you know, a little, and they'll be mentioning some of the people in my stuff, you know, and I would already know extensively about everybody, you know, because I had the comic books. And so anyway, that just kind of sparked me and kind of like make me feel like I had this like obligation to kind of look out the way those right. people did for the black legacy. My right. dad always instilled, and it was songs like, no matter what they take from me, they can't take away my dignity. Mm -hmm. All those kinds of songs. Right, and right. My dad was pushing that, yo, they can't never take away your dignity. As a family, we watched Roots, and I was looking at how Kunta was treated, and I was like, yo, I'm telling you, man, I ain't gonna be, you know, like all those little things. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. like, you know, you matriculate and growing up as a little shorty in your social life and in your and in your personal life. Right. So it's lights this fire. So when I was 17, man, I was a senior. I'm about to graduate from high school in Boston, Massachusetts. And um, my boy, it was me and two other my friends. We pulled up at the gas station and we saw these three girls, three of them, three of us. But lo and behold, after talking, one of them was Ayana Gregory, Dick Gregory, still, whose mm -hmm. birthday is my birthday. And so. She and I just clicked on some just like real holistic, like you know, I was kind of a thinker in my young age and she was right. the daughter of Dick Gregory. So Right, know. of course, yeah. <laughs> you know I mean? like, so she actually on instinct and on her intuition took us to her house in Plymouth, Massachusetts. Nobody comes to Dick Gregory's house. You know, Dick ain't that nobody to see. He wasn't there, but she felt like the onus to like bring me into that environment, let me see how they were raised. She was showing me like stuff that's now in Trader Joe's and Whole Foods, but Trader Joe's and Whole Foods wouldn't have been invented until another maybe 20 years from that point. Oh, yeah, right. And he was already with that kind of stuff. So she was trying to the sell me the fact that you didn't have to eat all that nasty Burger King and mm. look, sweeteners, you don't need sugar or beet juice. And she gave me this donut. It was an old fashioned donut. It was in the plastic wrapping. And I was like, there is no way this is going to be good. I've been into that most, <laughs> the most delicious thing. <laughs> so before I propelled and, and got into Howard, I had helped uh, create the African American, African -American studies group for my high school it didn't have that like a, 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 a like one of those like uh, after school kind of programs with the kids we actually did our own thing and we had programming we invited speakers the school gave us a room to do it in so we so i was already on that track and then public enemy was out takes the nation of middles looking to hold us back right. Right. You want to cover with the with the jail with the clock and the phone you know what i'm saying and you know elvis presley he wrote the most you know, you all yeah. know, man. You know, man. <laughs> it was all impressionate on us, man. Yeah, man. All that was happening, you know what I'm saying? Rakim Allah was like, but not as itself. It's not Rakim's soul. It's, it's 360, 360 degrees that revolve. It stays in my head all the time. It's the proof and the deed. Make the crowd keep moving. That's what we was talking ah. to. So I'm already Come on, there. brother. So I only applied to Howard University, despite having little college basketball scholarship little offers here and there and all that. I only applied to Howard. He was not trying to give me any money, nothing. But my dad made the mistake. He worked for the National Education Association and they had this big meeting during my spring break, my junior year in high school. And so he just figured that would be a good chance to just bring me to DC and let me just experience DC because that's where his headquarters were. So he drops me off at Howard at 11 o'clock AM as he goes to his meeting for the next two or three hours. And I'm sitting there on Howard's, you know, romanticizing about like, this is what college is like, you know, I'm just looking. 12 o'clock bell hit, I'm sitting on the steps of Fine Arts Building. The doors just bust open, like the ding, ding, ding. The doors bust open and humanity just flows out from all angles all over the school. And the be most beautiful women I've ever seen in all my life in one place, just hey, like a genius. Oh, yeah. So I was like, <laughs> I'm coming to Howard, I don't care. I'm in heaven. <laughs> <laughs> and I knew I was coming to Howard, it was just, that was it. So. 
I, you know, sacrificed all the little scholarships. My dad, had to, he was like, eat it. I'm like, dad, I'm coming to Howard the bus. And the only school I applied to, I looked at, I got like a thousand on my SAT, nothing to brag about, but barely enough to do something with. Right. And they got me into Howard, man. And, and I immediately started joining this thing called the Power Study Group. So Dr. Abdullah Lee Muhammad would come mm -hmm. from October 4 on Howard's campus. This, not even like nation-y, but just like building. Cause he was right. a brain surgeon. I don't know if people, a lot of people don't know that he's a trade. Dr. Arlene is a brain surgeon. Yes, sir. So on Howard's campus, he fit right in. That's this milieu, that's good. So he wanted to kind of like, kind of show some of the brothers on college campuses that look, man, I'm a brain surgeon. And I understood that it's time for the nation to kind of like throw some legs and you need to commit to something in our mm -hmm. community that's about entrepreneurship and self, you know, do for self and love self. Mm -hmm. Yep. All that kind of stuff. So I was attracted to that energy being from where I just come from with Ayana and, you know, starting my own African-American studies group at high school and feeling like, you know, public enemy was right. And I I, I, I had affinity to that, you know, the black medallions, the koofies at the time, you know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? All that was popping. That was in our culture. That was that was the culture. Yeah. So right. that just pushed me to this thing called Black Media Force first. I, I would do the power study groups, but the first kind of place where I kind of like took my energy on campus was Raz Baraka, who is now the mayor of New Jersey. Yeah. Right. He was, he was Raz Baraka, the head of Black Nia Force. Um, Nia meaning purpose, and Swahili, and force, freedom, organization for racial and cultural enlightenment. Mm -hmm. Force equals mass nice. times acceleration. We wanted to be the force to accelerate the masses into movement. That's kind of how we did our thing. And um, so I, I was dead, and it was real like Black Panther-esque. But we were in the community really doing food drives, cleanups. We was doing paramilitary training on Saturday mornings, no excuses. And we mm. took over that, we spearheaded the takeover of the A building. Um, when we took, when Lee Atwater was coming on the board of Howard University, KKK member, under the leadership right. of Pat Rocker and April Silver, sister, mm. incredible sister. Like, you know, uh, those two, um, you know, spirit, like, like led the movement, like maybe like 12 brothers beforehand, we would meet maybe two months out at the School of Architecture with the schematics for the A building's layout. <laughs> and how we were going to do it. We knew that we were going to leave the federal portion, which was the, the mail room, off limits to, I mean, let people actually come through there because the federal troops will have an excuse to come get us if we block that off. Mm -hmm. right. We had it all figured. By the time we took it over, man, it was so well done. It was like some precision stuff on some, like, some Marines type, you know, stuff. And then they gassed us out of there, tear gas us out of there, and Jesse uh -huh. Jackson kind of helped stop the tear gas and all that. But we got our demands met. But that needed, I was saying all that to say that that was my stair step into the nation. Mm -hmm. And then from there, I just went full on out. Got my X process. Really? Like my actual facts. You yeah. Gabriel X? Garfield X, man. Garfield, Garfield X. Yeah, I mean, Garfield X, I ran for Howard University. I said Gabriel, pardon me, brother. Oh, it's all good. People, the people at Starbucks always put Gabriel on my cup. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, all wow. that shit was going on. And at the time, in at Howard in DC, it was the crack era. So when when I was in the nation, that was the time when two things big happened. Dr. Abdullah Lee Muhammad was running for Congress hmm. for the first time ever. So where were the votes gonna come from? Cause this is a non-traditional move. So literally right. we went to all the hoods from PG County all over DC. And we were getting doing voter drives that actually go to door to door to people who would never ever think of voting to show them Dr. Aline that this will be a candidate who ain't like a politician, somebody who's gonna put himself into the fray of electoral politics, but he's a real brother that would, whatever he say he gonna do, if he say he gonna do something for you on that level, he's gonna actually do it if elected. Yeah. And they believed it, but we had to like sign people up, man, it was grueling, like 15, 16 hour days, summer, the whole summer. And then we went right from there, 
till the nation of Islam started getting security contracts because what we were doing was taking over project house, housing projects right. and ridding them of like, you know, stopping the drug dealers. Because a lot of these like Mayfair mansions, a lot of like elderly living in these projects scared to death to like, you know, come out. Come outside. Terrorized probably. Without no weapons, man. We were just setting up patrols 24 seven in these spots. And kind of I tell you, when the, F, when the FOI show up, things change. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we got shot at and different things like that, but we held it down and we persevered. And after a minute, it showed and proved that you know, with the love move and the love concept, and they knew we weren't armed, so it, the conscience of a brother couldn't go but so far just to, mm -hmm. right. you know, a couple of them tried, but most, on the most part, it was a heated exchanges often because we was messing up their money. <laughs> but at the same time, they understood why we was doing it for grandma, you know what I mean? Like yeah. she was, and a lot of grandmas, the crack houses was grandma's house because she couldn't really, you know, defend herself against the young grandson who was doing that, kind of, you know, it was like, mm -hmm. He was running up in crack houses, man, dudes trying to shoot the gun, wouldn't go, it was crazy. But we, we really were like, Doing that, so we started. The nation was getting government contracts for for a minute, mm -hmm. and so um, I was one of the youngest site supervisors because you know all cable buildings are federal, and so I was like a like by Howard there's a cable building on on 13th Street, 14th Street. Anyway, they put me in charge of that because since I was a college student and dealing with the administrators at the cable building, they kind of wanted to know a collegiate type of face to interact. And mm -hmm. I, right, I pulled it down. I was bright enough. And everything and but it was crazy because at the age of what 19 i was on um, like in a leadership position as a manager of that site over grown men who were like 40 and 50 and i had 12 employees that i was juggling their schedule and nobody wanted to work just one shift and i had to work the midnight to noon shift like that was against nature and go to high go to school wow it was crazy man but i was a young, yeah, I got married a young it was just a crazy I, I was doing a lot as a young shorty so before shy Man, I had grown up a lot real quick. Like, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. Let me, hey, let me go ahead, Sean. Because, because um, your master's is in African-American studies, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, That's because uh, of Howard's influence. So I'm, I'm just, I'm just wondering, like, um, you know, everything that we have going on in the world right now and race, race relations is something that's like a hot topic for everybody. I often hear people say, like, for um, the police force, they'll say things like, well, we need to hire more uh, minorities, which to me is a simplistic fix if we have a corrupt system you know and i liken it sometimes to you look at the new england the new england patriots right you um bill belichick could drop anybody in that system and they'll flourish because the system is designed to help people excel what's your opinion on on, on race relations and you know how do we begin i guess to to move forward race relations suck and they suck because <laughs> we do everything in society based on binaries with the misinterpretation of opposite as versus as opposed to complementary so that in capitalism, which is, and I'm not talking about just America, because even in communist countries, the, the global game is global mm -hmm. capitalism. So we're talking about supply and demand period, which has a built-in race component period. And, um, you know, because my theoretical framework was critical race theory coming from critical legal studies, which says that race is woven into society, end of discussion. There mm -hmm. is no, I wonder if, and, no, I'm starting from the premise that racism exists and it's, it's it's ubiquitous. Of course. So from there, dealing with that, race and class can't be separated. There's racialized class, even. like you know, so all of those things. But mm -hmm. the binary, the way we, the way we deal with each other as humans, we constructed race to navigate a faux reality based mm -hmm. on a matrix that we kind of invented, also as a construct, mm -hmm. conceptualized humans through the race piece. The only thing was that through postmodernism with, with the European establishing themselves as European and moving westward and 
deciding to, you know, to enrich the countries and, and, and go through different places and encounter different colors, they have this concept called true possession, where the white conceptual whiteness felt like possession was not true unless they established it. So when they would go to America and find quote unquote Native Americans doing Native Americanness, mm -hmm. that was not truly something that was opposed to stick proprietarily speaking to the white concept concept because they it was rough it was raw it wasn't something you know in their mind it was barbaric as opposed mm -hmm. to cultural yeah and so they because of that felt like those people forfeited their right to possess that identity that they created let me give you one that suits me better that i think you would look better on mm -hmm. and that concept whiteness starts to function as property and those who possess that property are protected from its ravishes, its collateral damage. You know what I mean? So you start getting whiteness as property and then the binaries created because the rugged individualism and, and the, uh, the competition aspect of, of capital, uh, the marketplace, dialectical mm. materialism. So even if I'm cool with you in the classroom, let's put it in the local way. If I'm cool with you in the classroom, Joe and Rosie are both my people, my friends, my ride or die. At some level, the structure, when you talked about structure, uh, is skewed um, in its own self, not as a mistake, but as as a byproduct of its natural design, haves and have-nots. That I'm competing with Rosie and, and, and Joey because I need to get a scholarship and it's limited, so maybe I'm competing with them through grades to get the scholarship. Like, it's always putting me as a, in a competition-based piece with my fellow brother and sister, and then we start to conflate that over time, but that's what humans naturally are, it's competitive. Mm -hmm. And I, I beg to differ. I think if, if put in a system with equanimity, and see the whole thing is imagination. You have to out-imagine this. Mm -hmm. you know, it's almost audacious to imagine a system that is not based on haves and have-nots, which is going to create an imbalance on the floor to any structure you build off of capitalism or that dialectic is going to be skewed because the whole system skewed. is not skewed. Yeah. You can't build an equitable, uh, equitable thing on an inequitable framework itself. Yeah. It ain't gonna ever work. It's like yeah. it's like a funnel that you drop into that uh, your oil when you put your oil in that little funnel. It's like thinking that there's some other destination that even though there's a wide circumference up there, like it ain't gonna end up at that little point at the bottom. Like you're fooling yourself if you think structure is already there. It's gonna end up there before you even put it in. You know where it's gonna end up because the structure is telling you. Well, I, you know. So the, the sad thing about that is, I think as people of color, we've we've lived that experience. Although we may not be able to articulate it, but I think the challenge is sometimes getting white people to understand that just as what you're describing actually exists. You know, it's a real struggle to get white people to believe that white privilege look, exists look, because that's true. Like in this conscious racism, Dr. Joyce King was mm -hmm. one of my mentors. She talked about this conscious, and so racism. If you've been in that position of benefiting from it, that's just been your normal. You haven't even right. really checked mm -hmm. what the hell's going on. Yeah. You can't even fathom that. And it might not even be some kind of egregious or thing that you're doing in a pejorative way. You just, the way you've lived, you just never, you know, you might just be so yeah. self-centered just in your flow, not even knowing it, that you yeah. just beating up all kind of people not realizing it. Like, Blind, yeah. yeah, blindly, you don't even know what's going on. It's, it's because, it's because <laughs> it's insidious, though. It's, you know, it's, it's insidious. And it's just, it's just, like you said, it's just all that people people know, I don't know what we do, you know, to help people understand that white privilege exists and that this this paradigm, you know, this world that is people of color that we're, we live in, that this is, a, this is a reality, you know, because what happens is I think sometimes people get roped into comparing oppression. So you'll have people that they want to disassociate themselves away from being an oppressor and they'll say, well, my family was originally from Ireland and, you know, when they came here, they weren't enslaved or they had this issue or that issue and then it just really becomes about comparing oppression and atrocities and, and they just and people just lose the whole message in terms of what it actually is 
you know, so. Yeah, there's so many standpoints who have a narrative that is not even included in the narrative that's supposed to be the normative narrative, which shows you that other things exist outside of this narrative that's supposed to include everything that paints the picture. If those things exist and it ain't in there, that means that this thing don't account for everything. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you got the feminist standpoint because of the inequity. You got, you know, with the gender thing. So you, you got, you know, you got the black, white, but the, all the binaries, anything that's a binary is always gonna be one first past the post and it's gonna dominate it. Even in our political system of Democrat, Republican, um, first past the post. So mm -hmm. if the Democrat wins, then the hell with anything Republican, it's over with. <laughs> Vice versa, it's like a polarity-based piece. Yeah. Reinforced by sports, football, it's always with competition. It's, you know, you want somebody's got to win and somebody's got to lose. But paradigmatically, we can imagine a situation where there's a win-win and there shouldn't be nothing wrong with that kind of style of existence. But yeah. it wouldn't fuel a marketplace that's based on competition. Yeah, so we have right. to out-imagine a society that would have nothing to do with capital for the sake of capital. We have to imagine society that's beyond race, but not post-racial. Because the ethnicities right. that are different, the con the the, uh, the, the, the the contrast in our ethnicities is the is the element that where the problem solving glue is. Right. So if it's not looked as adversarial, it's looked as complementary. Imagine a circle, 360 degrees, and you flat on it, looking across. As you're going this way, them people going to the left, you're going to the right. It looks right. like they do opposite you. But if you're over here, you see y'all going in the same direction. Yep. And then you see that their perspective over there, while they telling you what they see, instead of you saying, oh man, mine is way doper than yours, shut up, knucklehead, because what they what you can happen is that viewpoint, you can benefit from seeing through their eyes without having to actually be in that spot if you're open to it. Mm -hmm. Then you can get a full comprehensive picture of what we in and problem solving and solution-based interaction can come from that galvanization, especially if there's no capital in it where somebody has to win and somebody has to lose. Yeah. That's not even a thought. We all trying to win and proactively so. We invested in that project, racialized projects that create win-win scenarios. And really all that is about is unifying the vision. And so having dialogues that have shared meaning making moments at the same time, where we mm -hmm. make meaning together and then build floors like that and then proceed. Yeah. And, you know, and then so the imagination does not become some shit called innovation, which is imagination for sale. Mm -hmm. And usually that's military application. Imaginary, <laughs> imagination just for the sake of seeing something dope Great. in your mind's eye that can help society, you know, and then have the audacity to make it. So kids would be totally pushed in young age to imagine, like that's part of their curriculum. Because, you know, the society that they could be plugged into in that style wouldn't be a marketplace. Mm -hmm. It would be a, a it would be a, a ability-based system based on trying to go as far as you can with your thought and see if you can materialize that mm -hmm. for the sake of the whole. So light operates as waves and particles. <laughs> He's talking my language, bro. Ubuntu <laughs> is I am because we are, which is wave and particle. So sure. it's a duality that shouldn't be able to be reconciled, but light really pushes itself through itself. And so the individual aspects are very much so individual. Look at the double wave, double slit experiment. But when you look at the whole, it proactively is like, but we are a we too. So there's right. both functions at the same time. So really the new paradigm, if people can wrap their head around it, is really to go for self, but for the whole. Mm -hmm. Like really have an ideal that you are representing, but you're doing it in your own way. And hip hop, mm -hmm. just default wise, has done that on its own, but nobody has really understood the power of it except the people who make money off of it. Yeah. But and that, and that, that's something that weaves <clears throat> together all these cultures that everybody is trying to do their version of what they think is hip hop. That's going for self, but they really, 
They ain't trying to come whack with it. They trying to really represent that <laughs> idea, that ideation, that imaginary in the dopest way possible. Yeah. Now, somebody might call it whack from over here because they think this is doper. Mm -hmm. But in these people's mind, they have come up with the flyest way to, because they identify with something they mm -hmm. think is dope and they trying to represent it. Yeah. It ain't no infiltration by COINTELPRO because it ain't no leader. That thing got a life of its own and people, the enigma of it vibrate. It's a frequency. Yeah. And so those are the real futuristic ways that we can overcome because it's imaginary mm -hmm. based and it's narrative based. You can tell mm -hmm. stories in it. Mm -hmm. Even if we spray painting, if we DJing, if we breaking, or if we rhyming, it's still all a story that we tell them with our body, with our words. And it's an attitude that's countercultural and it's not status quo driven. It's based on the human thing trying to get out of us. Mm -hmm. And that's the solution, those types of mechanisms. Yeah. You know, so to me, like that's what I see. Yeah, and it's and it's funny because we just quoted Rock Kim, man, and you know. Me privy with the nation. I wasn't a part of the nation, but I've been around a lot of brothers in the nation. And my uncle was raised as part of the 5%. And we both yeah. know knowledge is your foundation. Yeah. Without yeah. knowledge, you ain't got nothing. So let me ask you this. What's the most important most important part of our culture that our people aren't aware of? Uh, the most important part, important part of our culture is that people aren't aware of. Our people aren't aware of. People, oh. you can, yeah, you can... You know, you can answer that any which I, way. I feel like it's the uh, the spirit, like the intuitive aspect of ourselves that we write off because we can't quantify it. It's just, oh, that's just some. I don't know. Thing is the thing that got Harriet Tubman. Like that's the thing. Like that's that thing that that's all the essence that stuff is inside of. And if we nurture that and believe in it and act on it as if it's a thing, that right. also is our our source of authority through experience. Because in the academy, I got a PhD. I know the source of authority very rarely is, is acknowledgeable if you just taking your experience as a source of authority. You gotta have an idea that 50 other scholars in the past and had that you can quote and use to validate mm -hmm. your new idea into the system. Yeah, and right. if anybody thought of some stuff you thought of based on your spirit, you can't express it because ain't nobody else thought of it for you to quote. And that's whack. It's right. like, whatever you do, you still got to come through that. Right. I got some I can't be original. <laughs> and so you should, you know, so <laughs> that thing, though, it gets beat out of us because it don't count in a lot of spaces. So who actually gets to say what counts as knowledge is important. And if you just proclaim that knowledge base through the spirit, that's the thing that connects all of our DNA. That's the thing that makes when Larry and Sue is in Florida with a certain dance that they thought they just came up. And at the same damn time, without no phone conversations, over in over in Missouri somewhere in St. Louis, they doing the same dance, same calling thing. Something you know what I'm saying? Yo, y'all doing the such and such? How that go? Oh no, that's the such and such. And ain't no right. cross paths. That shit just we the antenna the same way that this. That's the I am. We are. Yeah, and that thing is the realest thing that that was taught in schools in the third and fourth grade that that exists and to nurture that along the way. You don't think our spiritual bonds would be tighter? We might even have more propensity for ESP and all kind of stuff if we based it on yeah. that. Inner I call it an inner technology. I look at it as technology, because I, I think if we demystify it, are we always calling it spiritual? No, that's an inner technology activated through emotion and will. And if you activate it and direct it and point it, it definitely will it works. be the field through <laughs> which you experience reality. I've tried it, man. I, I do stuff like that all the time. And so those are the things that I think core content-wise that should actually be taught in schools. Like yeah. those kinds of things. Along with math and all the other things, but those sensibilities should be nurtured along the way. Yeah, there's, there's with, with everything, again, with everything that's going on, you know, and we have the Black Lives Matter movement trying to push things forward. And I was watching the news today and I seen, I think one of the anchors was saying she feels like there's, some, there's been some movement. I don't, I mean, I, I think certainly there's a level of awareness, 
that's um that's definitely coming out of this and you see like the different um different organizations different corporations and everybody yeah. trying to acknowledge now black lives matter it's weird um, it's weird it is it's very it's very weird to yeah. me I'm wondering the uh, another popular topic that comes up as a result of this is reparations. People start talking about reparations, right. and I'm a firm believer that um, in terms of reparations, given a check, you know, let's say is an arbitrary number, giving somebody ten thousand dollars, giving somebody ten thousand dollars, or giving me ten thousand dollars is not helpful in a form of reparation because ten thousand dollars is not going to close the income disparity or the wealth disparity gap that we have in this country. What's your opinion on, on in terms of reparations? What do you think would be suitable reparations? Like when you're dealing in logic and rational thought, you know, um, those things make sense. But just like in relationship with, with affairs of the heart, logic don't don't make no sense in that realm. Like, you know, like that, okay, we can think that through and say, yeah, that two plus two doesn't, that stuff don't even apply to those kinds of, so to me, the concept of reparations while I, if, if other people have a precedent for receiving it and blah, 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 yes, I feel like we should. But at, in the most realest, realest, realest thing I can think of is that the same way Brown versus Board of Education established desegregation in schools, but they did it with all deliberate speed. And even with that, you still come up with when they finally did crunch blacks and whites because blacks felt like proximity to whiteness gave them a better chance of something or whatever. Mm -hmm. When you crunch them in the same space, then you started getting tracking. <laughs> so blacks were still tracked to these lower, <laughs> so it was segregated, same spaceness. If the heart ain't ready to proactively understand that it's a we thing as in terms of like, how do you do human? If that's not the thing, and, and Chris, your poster behind you always talked about that human, that human mm -hmm. piece. You know, um, that's the, none of this stuff, all those stuff's a band-aids until you address, how are you doing human? Mm -hmm. What does that look like? Yeah. And what would a school system look like that really was predicated on doing human instead of doing capital and, and making a product for the marketplace, these people? Like, if it was making a human for a human, like school is an economy of scale, a microcosm of the, the, the actual whole economy. It, it creates the products that are going to interface. And it's right now in the process, process of creating real smart obeyers and um, uncritical, hmm. uncritical, smart, ability-wise obeyers. Mm -hmm. And that 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 type of thing is a product that's being made. It's not a character education that's nurturing a human to be able to like come out and self-actualize and then plug that into some mm -hmm. thing that they resonate with and then be a, create structures of love because they really love and what they are able to do. And they, yeah. those, that's a different kind of society. And, and you know, so we talking about family and stuff compared to like the heart having to change. And for those things, those realities to happen, the heart has to be different on both sides of the coin. Yeah. Because we got we got a bad case of learned helplessness. It's a dude, yeah. Martin Seligman, you know, a while ago wrote a book on learned helplessness I used to read and stuff. And, and if you look far, I mean, slavery, if you look at slavery for three, 400 years, I mean, think of 50 years of that was crazy. 100 years of that is bananas. 200 years is just ridiculous. Three is crazy. Then you keep going to another century of it? Like, ah, we all crazy right now. We don't know it. A lot of us gonna deal with life better, but to even normalize this normal is off-center because this normal is so crazy off of what human resonance actually is that we gotta be crazy just to call this normal and, and swim in it, to just survive. So we have to remember that, that we crazy right now in, in terms of being able to be ambidextrous enough to deal with it. That's crazy. Is, That's crazy just hearing that. Yeah, but the reality is there's a part of us that never got touched that we got, and that's that intuitive part to go back to the original. 
that intuitive string, that continuity piece that connects the diaspora, no matter what, you can feel that tremor. You know, um, that's the part that we have to actually embolden and emboss. So we can kind of like start building structures based on it and with the imaginary. Everything is ideas. Mm -hmm. That's what's being sold in the marketplace. It's not things. It's Bravo. concepts of how mm -hmm. people relate that went out like the number one hit on a billboard um, in terms of social ideas. It's the same thing. They blow up and hit the charts running and people coagulate and buy into them. There's a critical mass enough to buy into them and the media serves them through to you on a smorgasbord and they got the ability to reach everybody's ear at the same exact time creating a full element of common sense in the right. highest level of common sense right. you know is, is 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 what you're seeing it's like when it's beyond reproach because everybody got it at the same time it's like this force-fed common sense it's yeah. not organic if i had right. to under lock i could put my ideas out and everybody in their homes can get my idea at the same time my sense would be common sense and woo, that is, woo. <laughs> watch out for that one brother and like, so, they call it <laughs> they call it algorithms on social media yeah they feedback loop man and but it's always been feedback loops that have been tricking us into consuming ourselves at our own expense, you know, a right. version of ourselves at our own expense. And so, because the end game of this whole thing, let's face it, is capitalism is set up such that um, you, sub, you, you subdue nature um, and then you, you make it for sale so somebody can own it um, and, and, and somebody, somebody can consume it. And at, at a certain point, that consumption muscle, that, 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 uh, that market, that, that profit motive, will have you because humans become human resources so it dehumanizes them it'll have the consumption will make you consume yourself out of existence at a certain point in the city. right you right. recognizing that you you just ate yourself up right you're just and eating yourself up yeah but you were so built on consuming and making that supply and, you know, and all these algorithms and they didn't account for that that, that singularity that's that black hole that's going to happen from that mm -hmm. um, because right. it's not based on anything but thinginess so <laughs> getting out of thingness, that material thing, and get to a surrational um, kind of thought process that's not predicated on linear thought, essentialist thinking, stair-step thinking, that is not taking into account the spirit part because you can't put it in a syllogism and make it quantifiable. Can't be quantified, yeah. Yeah, they think they just don't exist. Like how Einstein just said ether don't exist. And then made everything <laughs> like light the same, you know, like just, I, I can't explain it. So I'm just going, uh, nah, man, that stuff exists and it impacts us. Let's, let's deal with that. Let's and deal with that. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. We got to look at these elephants in the room. Like and, and, and our, our imagination is key, man. Like if you can see a visual of how it could be, then it's real now. Yeah. All you got to do is put, put it together. Do it. Yeah. And yep. then look at them structures. Yeah. And the that's right. Like, look at it, you know? Right, 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 right. Man, you made a, uh, 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 made a, like a, a concept that I like. Information is physical. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Explain that to us. So it's like, you could, in, in all venues of life, like you can really understand the fact that information is living. And, and so I don't have to say a word, but I can give you a look and it'll transfer. You will encode that. And you, if I give you a stern enough look, you might get chills or something, or you might, your heart Be is afraid. Fast. Right, That's right, right. Read the information that I was transmitting and it moved you, physically moved you, broke you out in hives, you know, or whatever it did to you, pissed you. Like, so information is substantive, it moves, it takes right. form, it's, it goes through a medium, like, like light goes through a medium. 
um, the ether. <laughs> like uh, right. water waves go through water to be the wave function. Like information and all that is information. All those, those are data points. And so we are just superpositions of information that are that have coagulated that get to impact and there's a there's a, a transfer a, du- a a mutual transfer um that transforms both both parties at all times it's like a information super highway, super highway <laughs> that's, that's always osmotically impacting and change like it's a system it's a natural system of ecology that sure. is that is you know expressing itself through us through our transactions it's always that's transactional true. This meeting is forever in some kind of way going to change you, you, and me from having sure. like it's just, and that's more than what's said. The emotions, the feeling, the undertone that accompanies just the presence, um, I, and that's information decoded. And I'm saying that's physical. It's nothing right. that is not physical. There is no thing that's not a thing. There's no that's such right. thing as no thing. Yeah. Right. Right. Your, um, your, your dissertation was um, what soul in a can. Yeah, and was and and you're talking about I guess um, do you have you experienced similar constraints in urban classrooms? That yeah, that was about me. That damn dissertation was was me throwing <laughs> both of myself up, but it just what happens that I am a precedent, like a an embodied precedent of black kids in the classroom. So I went and interviewed actual black students mm-hmm. in the classroom, male, and I am also this artist that matriculated again through an industry. Mm-hmm. that I had to figure that damn thing out. And there were stages to my navigation of that inequitable power dynamic. I represent other dudes. So I interview other dudes, you know? So mm-hmm. it wasn't just me, but they are totally both sides of myself to them mm-hmm. vicariously. Like that's, and I and, and I found a common ground. You know? what, are the, what are the similar constraints that, you, um, that you've experienced? Well, what, oh shoot, like, well, okay. Well the state, well the dissertation ends up finding that it looked at how black males navigate inequitable power spaces. Like, how do they navigate that? And I looked at how that occurs in schools in terms of the classroom setting of black maleness in classroom settings where white maleness runs that establishment. What does that look like as a process? And then, whoop, right over to the entertainment venue, specifically the music industry, mm-hmm. black male artists who, as soon as they create their art, it becomes product that the white male dominated establishment mm-hmm. then you know so the soul in the can represents that you think that you still this artist producing art you are just an extension of their product in the inverse function so they'll sell your ass they'll sell your soul in the can with the product mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying yes, sir. <laughs> you know what i mean and that's what that was and so the stages see if i can remember like the, the exact name so the beginning is um child and error stage i'm just going to take it from the, the music part since that's Excuse what we have um, trial and error stage is like you get confronted with this damn contract. Now, the power mode in the contract is already skewed. I didn't bring my own contract to the table when they brought theirs and we say which one we gonna <laughs> use or something like that. I came to the table and this man came to the table with a contract from his company that's already solid. Uh-huh. It's my job to find points in there to try to see if I can peel back and make work for me, but yeah. this is the document we're working with. So it's already skewed power dynamic wise. I ain't gonna never get the upper hand in this relationship. Mm-hmm. Ah, so I signed it. I'm agreeing to be sunned in a lot of ways by that. And so trial and error, right? So then you get in like thinking that you're going to be this, 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 this creator of art in perpetuity because that's what they need. This art, you know, you, oh, uh, I'm an artist, goddamn, you know, the cultural elements, uh, this I represent. 
if that thing don't fit their model in terms of their projected with the numbers game, with the analytics and all the mm -hmm. stuff that seems like they don't elements ain't in that thing where they can predict the bottom line because they invested. I don't give a what your art was doing and how you know the marketplace in your mind, the product aspect of your art mm -hmm. is not jiving with our projections. Mm -hmm. You need to either go change this art or we're gonna shelve you. <laughs> so now yeah. I'm learning, so it becomes trial and error phase to, oh shit, peak game phase. The peak yeah. game phase where you start having your education of you got hit in the face with the whole concept of I didn't know that this is what it was like. I yeah. thought it was this. The aha moment. Ha ha moment. So then the peak game, you peep game. And then when you peep game, you get some jewels, you see the power dynamics, you start kind of understanding that he who writes the check might be the one in power right here. That's what <laughs> my heart is and what I'm attached to. Yeah. All that. Hey, he ain't attached to none of that shit, including me. Right. He just make the money. Though. That's sad so, because you see people sad. simplify and compromise their art as a result yeah, of it and they chase the hit. That's why I did that to kind of like explicate that. And that thing is kind of metaphorical, even though I really went through it. It's metaphorical and, and outside. And so let me get to the rest of the stages because there's a place. Okay, so peep game, trial and error turns into peep game. And you get patting the bell on them, you get a new attitude. I got a new attitude. <laughs> so from the game that you peeped, now you kind of retooling and modifying some of your approaches because you might've thought that you had a little leverage because it was based on your ability to create art. But really, right. the leverage is more diminished than you thought. But can you find a way to preserve your soul and not give up too much of your youthness? and still be able to still quasi be an artist knowing that it's going to be product driven in this marketplace mm. and try to find some kind of like you know vesica pisces like that little sweet spot into the overlapping you know circles that little yeah. can you find that and get it together to where you ain't giving up too much you sleep at night and look at yourself in the mirror knowing you ain't sell out mm -hmm. but you know you got to make some concessions to stay in this thing because you ain't in control like you thought how yeah. does that look for you when you figuring it out so that's the new attitude you applying that and then you probably get good at it. If the extent to which you can get good at it, you might have more of a longevity in that thing because you found a comfort zone. Mm -hmm. um, and then at the end, after the new attitude, then you look at it as um, experience is the best tool. There are some fundamental yes, truths that are gonna come out of that that are gonna guide you even in your personal life after you, you leave that space, like that mm -hmm. have just been axiomatic or something like that. And, um, and, and those vary for different people, but understanding that there are no friends in the industry in terms of like business business yeah. in the context of capital that is designed on haves and have-nots how can you think that friends can exist when that's an equanimity based mutual relationship mm -hmm. that structure of that don't fit that's like fitting one of them you know the little baby blocks they get the cylinder and on the top you got a square cut out a triangle cut out mm -hmm. you're supposed to put the blocks in, in one of those ones that fit it's like trying to put that spherical thing in that square one like It'll probably fit if you push it some more. It'll go down. Yeah, you jam it in there, it'll go it's in there, anything. It's a natural fit, <coughs> go together. But you can kind of, you know what I mean? So that's what it was. And um, you start learning those things and you're applying them to, to your real life. And it will inform your next, like Tracy Lee, one of the people I interviewed, it hit him so hard that after that experience and digesting those harsh truths, he went and became an attorney, an entertainment lawyer. So he could yeah, yeah, yeah. really be up on game about the situation. He went to Howard also, right? Yeah, it's my Howard bruh. And I did also DDOT, Derek Angeletti, you know. Um, right. Yeah, so. That's what's up. So that's, that's, that's kind of what it was about for me. And I experienced those same things, man. Like I remember like, shoot, we were, um, <laughs> we named our album Blackface, first of all, man. Like, <laughs> Blackface, I kind of came with the idea, okay, okay. The label let you? 
<laughs> wow, let me tell you about the let you part. You're right. <laughs> it was like a weird thing. We kind of had it a certain shock him from Flavor Unit had cussed out our, our um our, our label and uh, higher uh, exec so bad when he renegotiated our contract. Just like the time now, he kind of made some of them feel like they got to honor this black dude. Just on some like, you know, to, to, to do PC. But he was cussing them out because he knew he knew how to really deal with them and he knew the money game. So they couldn't get over anyway. So we, um, we, um, uh, dang, I forgot what I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> about black, black about, about, about them allowing it. So <laughs> our swag was like, I'm like, this is the second album. We from Howard. Um, we already kind of like got shorted in terms of like, they didn't really want to let us promote ourselves at Black Radio in our first album because they wanted that pop money. And we were kind of naive and we didn't really know what was going on kind of till too late. We wanted to re-ingratiate ourselves with our Black mates, like, yo. So Al Jolson, coming from MCA with the blackface dynamic, was a pejorative against blackface. It's racist, so it's racist. Yes, sir. But the blackface as a concept, you know, like I felt like, you know, Marcus Garvey all the way, you know, Elijah Muhammad all the way, you know, down to Black Lives Matter. Um, it was like, yo, black is beautiful, you know what I mean? Yeah. And like the blackface is not a pejorative thing. And I felt like, matter of fact, since hip hop culture has become pop culture itself, then people identifying with blackness in that way, then I felt like the black face as a motif for creativity and originality, you know, have, have, um, transcended suffering and those types of quality characteristics. Everybody can identify with a black face as that metaphor. So I kind of sleekly was saying that inside of all, everybody's face is a black face in terms of what I'm saying, um, the, the definition of what a black face metaphorically is in that moment. And so we went to the big meeting with the big board table, the, the long board table. I was allowed to come. <laughs> Al Taylor, Randy Phillips, the president of our label. Al Taylor was ahead of MC at the time. And all the big execs all around the board where they really talk about their fiscal year and their bottom line. And so I'm in that meeting, the creative meeting. And Randy is like, yo, you don't have to name it blackface if you don't want it to. And the dude was like, no, we'll, we'll keep it blackface. We'll keep it blackface. <laughs> and so, I was just like, damn, he just gonna let us have it like that? I was fully expecting for it to just be wiped at that point. Uh, right. But he kept it and that got me suspicious. Like, nah, just like right now kind of got me suspicious. I ain't gonna speak on it yet, but um, in, in this moment of life with everything, just all of a sudden agendas just rolling out already. Yeah. It's like, dang, like, right. it's weird. But um, Nobody wants to be on the wrong side of history. Yeah. That's what is about. Part of it is organic and I think part of it is like the co-intel, like this, there's some stuff to this moment that's like the jab for the right hook that's coming. Right, 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 right. Set up, you know. I'm gonna faint you here, but watch you like, in the club. Like, in critical in critical race theory, there's another concept called interest convergence. And as long like for the establishment, they'll they'll give you some just do as long as that those interests are aligned for that moment. Mm-hmm. You'll get the district, what Brown versus Board of Education, but soon as that runs out of involvement for what they needed it for. Yep. That sustainable aspect is gone. And the yep. worst for the wear is always the one who has the less power or leverage or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the only reason why in the civil rights era, the Brown versus Board thing was, was really, really put more than what you thought it was. It wasn't just the Martin and Malcolm dynamic. It was also this cat that was outside the country that spoke about 18 languages that was all, all world, the most close you can come to a black superhero on this earth is this dude named Paul Robeson. And because he mm. could sing and he was stopping wars, singing certain spirituals, and he could sit there and speak the languages of all these different um, 
foreign uh, countries that he was going to, mm -hmm. he was giving an audience with their with their with their leadership. And because he could speak their language, that made him even more interesting to them. And because he was intellectual, the first PhD come out of Princeton, I think even maybe in the United States, Princeton was, you know, south side of Harvard, one of the earliest. Anyway, he was all everything on football. He led it on football. Um, uh, he was all world. The guy it was crazy. His, so he was able to talk to them. And so America, unbeknownst to us at the time, was on the cusp of with the idea of getting ready to develop a global capitalist system that would strongly depend on how the world saw their democraticness mm -hmm. being played out. Of and so they can't sell democracy that they was with the free trade agreements and all the stuff that they would later be going to do. Yeah. This, that was the setup for that. We didn't know none about that stuff yet because we weren't living it yet, but they had to get that. And so the outside world looking in on them like a fishbowl at that point when they was treating blacks like doo-doo, wasn't going to bode well for their plans and their convincibility and their initial buy-in, you yeah. know, before yeah. they started. So that really was the dynamic that got Brown versus Board as a gesture to even be like considered and passed with Thurgood Marshall and all of that, that nice narrative. It wasn't as organic as we thought it was in terms yeah. of just a byproduct of a civil rights piece. That was partially it, but there was really that and what he intercepted as their plans going forward. And he got blackballed out of history. Don't nobody even know who Paul Robeson is and stuff like that. He got that red line with the communists and all that scared. Yeah. Right. But he was a real hero of equal weight as Malcolm and Martin. Like, mm -hmm. not more because of what he was able to do on the outside. Like, push people, push people's face and make them look at America. Like, look, look, I'm yeah. a black man and you see how I'm so intelligent. I speak a thousand languages. You see what I am. You feel my, I'm the black man that's playing Othello when they lynching black people and I'm kissing Desdemona. Like, you see how they see me. You understand mm -hmm. the power within me and I understand it. And I'm human enough to say, look, man. You know, and so Paul Robinson was a big piece of that. So like today is there's other contextual factors outside of it that is like pushing this. And I, I feel like there are organic parts of it, but there are definitely inorganic parts of it. Too. Of course, there's external motivations and other other people have vested interests for a reason. And you see you it like, looking at the, the fabric of it. You know, there's some different tangential like pieces that are the undercurrents that will over time express themselves as being off. Like, you know, you ever been behind a car and y'all about to make a left hand turn, it's a red light, and there's one car ahead of you and y'all both got your left blinker on and it'd be like off a little bit, it'd be off, it'd be off and all of a sudden. And then it catches like, the same. Yo, you're a visual dude, man. You don't miss a beat, yo. Yo, what I, what I like, what I love about you, now that I'm meeting you and, 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 and doing some research on you, you're a man of concepts. You put yeah. things together, you you, 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 you kind of survey what's going on and you come up with a concept. And two concepts that I like is, can you speak to, Elik was it Elikis? Am I pronouncing oh, that right? Alakus, and 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 your neoliberal urbanism. Ooh, man, that's that's what the, that's that's everything, a, that's everything right there. Yeah, so, but, well, um, speak on the first one. Alakus is a, phil a philosophical term, um, you know, like um, um, the Socratic method, uh, Socrates, the questioning. He equipped, like he engaged with people who are you know, we call them sophists, like sophists are like people who talk all that stuff, but they really don't have a real bottom line. It's like they create that straw man and all, but it sounds good. Right. And so because of that element, he would always question them on like, what is knowledge? How do you really know what you know? Like epistemology, like how do you know what you know? Mm -hmm. Like how do you know a chair is a chair? 
And then people, when they get down to it, they really can't actually say that they know that. They can't really give you a reason that, that is actually knowable. Right. They, can, they can say that they feel it is, or they think it is, or they, so anyway, he would break them down to a point where people would understand that the more I really know, the why, the, the, when I grow in wisdom, that's when I actually come to a point that I know for sure. The only thing I know is that I don't know shit. Mm -hmm. like, mm, and that's, that's the right. point where Alan Coos has taken you. That's the conclusion that now you can build as a real philosopher based on rigor. You can come to some, some, some triangulated pieces that are more true um, in terms of like, if there's a, such an idea, then the frivolous stuff. It's, it's, right. it's untrue, but it's based on rigor where you can kind of like de deconstruct that and stuff like that. So Alan Coos is the realization through the Socratic method that you don't know, that you know enough to know that you don't know nothing. And right. then you can see from there with a real rigorous uh, quest for the thirst, uh, right? Yeah. For knowledge, yeah. And I feel like that place is, is it come, so, so Socrates was a critic. It was like a, it was an intellectual beatdown, but it was not through uh, actualness. It was through mm -hmm. questions that made you consider this and consider that. Like when you go get your contact lenses, that lady flipped that thing, she'd be like this one, and then she'd go sideways and be like that one. Right. Which one? Like it's like that, and then you know, whittle it till you see clearer, basically. That's right. And then so that's I think for any kind of critical dialogue right now between blacks, 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 white, whites, black, Mexican, it gotta be a point to where we critique each other in the spirit of trying to find that point collectively where we figure that damn all of our assumptions ain't worth a damn that we have right. on both sides. And we need, and to, now, we need to learn from one another. Now let's make meaning together. Yeah, let's right. build up what, instead of siloed meanings that we're trying to push on each other, let's break that down and now let's come through dialogue, cr critical hard dialogue, with agreeing to proactively engage that. Let's come up with some truths that we agree upon that can be a right. forward to some forward movie. It's right. that simple. Um, sure. And that's Alan Kuhn's to me, practically right. served. And then the other thing is neoliberal urbanism. The neoliberal agenda is quite simply the whitening out of black space or the privatization of public space. So the commons is no longer an item. Everything is owned. And when everything is owned, it's private interest. And those private interests, it goes from stuff like elections on a, on a, on a government level, it goes to governance where, you know, city council are appointed, you know, and the, because you elect the mayor, but he appoints the people. You don't get to vote for these people. He, he appoints. So you got private-public partnerships and stuff like that that start to proliferate with money and con like New Orleans, you know, the Hurricane Katrina um, militaristic weather thing that they did to get mm -hmm. the heat popping off. So then, you know, it can decimate a city militaristically, basically, psychologically mess them up, make them dis disperse all over the place. Mm -hmm. And you can come in for cheap and redesign a city looking like you now. <laughs> and building houses that they used to have apartments in that they can't even come back and live in. Yep. And even if they could, they can't afford that. So now your imaginary, your ideation has now become physical based on you having the ability to do a thing the way it looked like God did it. And then you can kind of recreate a whole oasis in your image and stuff like that um, and, and own it and then regulate it government wise where it's governance instead of government where it's not elected. It's more like chosen. Kind of like okay. the device that happens in electoral politics where all these people are voting the president and then the electoral college can determines <laughs> who the president yeah. is. It's like federalism <laughs> still existing on the low, even though people's not the federalist piece. It's more, you know, it's like that kind of thing. So that's what neoliberal urbanism is. And right now what we see is gentrification is all over. So that thing happening. 
um, is the white genie out. So you start in the, in the way that they do it, like, okay, remember eminent domain when they would literally just come up to you and tell you that you got to go, we're doing the freeway here, we have too much money. Mm-hmm. That had too much pushback. So the re-entrenchment was now, all the marketing, that's the best marketing always targets the babies. That's, that's the emotional, like, you know. Beautification, better place for kids to live. But specifically <laughs> through, like, the, the, the militaristic design of cities makes it be that around colleges, usually, this educational space around them is usually the hood, for some reason. Yeah. It's always around the college. Yeah, right? Coppin, if you ever been to Coppin State, in the oh. middle of Baltimore, oh. always that way. Like, <laughs> even in like, even like, so. The, Everywhere. Especially for black schools. In, in right, HBCUs, man, they're all in the hood, man. And so the thing is this, if they want to neoliberalize the space and turn the projects into mixed race, uh, progressive, like upper, higher money things mm-hmm. uh, to, to do, they will make it look like the school itself is expanding. They will, the school will buy certain properties around there. Yeah. People that live there won't be pissed off because they'll just feel like the school is getting- School's you know, growing. The school for the kids is getting yeah. better. Like, okay, 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 I'll let, it's for the kids. Right. And so they can push out their places and stuff. Too, and I yeah. realize that's a tactic. So you won't, you know, and, but they don't understand that that's an actual real thing about the neoliberal agenda. Mm. And, uh, but it's just really the, the concept that, like any time you've heard of urban renewal or or regeneration yeah. projects or you know that that's cold just like how urban is cold for black those things are cold for let's move blackness out of this space and replace it with whiteness that's right. neoliberal urbanism yeah. and we see it through the gentrification and if i were a phd guy it would be looked at as a conspiracy theory thing but in those programs where very few black people actually are black males the, the books that are the state of the field that we're reading as it's our intellectual every day, they are actually speaking to those things and naming names and everything. Mm-hmm. So it's like, they know it's real because they learning about it, but yeah. they can use that, you know, if you ain't in the service, they're like, ah, oh, yeah, he's just, and I'm like, ah, right. oh, man, now I see what the game is. Like, you know, so. Yeah. It's, it's, a trip. it's a it's a, it's a painful thing to, um, to live in a house that's valued at $200,000. And then as a result of, um, gentrification you know you can no longer afford the house but then the house is worth 1.2 million dollars or straight two million yeah they'll do the property tax thing um like there's a there's a place down in florida close to destin and this is um a lot of black like uh actors or business parts of the business community they went and bought up this land on the beach man oh man i can't think of the name of it man it's the dopest thing that they did so revolutionary in Destin, Florida? It's close to Destin. It's not quite in Destin. It's like right out in this beautiful real estate on the beach. They bought it, put a hotel in it. It's right next to a, um, what's the hotel? Uh, uh, name of the morning. Uh, the W? That, that's not it. It's, it's, it's the Gaylord? <laughs> nah, nah, it's, 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 uh, damn, I, I ran out of, I ran out. I don't know hotel that is, and I think, cause it's Prince's favorite hotel, actually. Uh, anyway, it ain't. Anyway, it's right next to it, and it's a long swath of land. Mm-hmm. And over time, the, the, the people there didn't want that black element there. But these black people that were there were of a upper class kind of mm-hmm. like persuasion, you know, for the land. And what was happening is, in terms of how they re-entrenched themselves and pushed that neoliberal agenda, they were family with the judges and the different people who can influence the property taxes and force a raising of the property taxes, um, which over time was supposed to 
have them being priced out of that area. But they could pay the property tax. They was able to just pay the property, pay property tax. tax. And we ain't going nowhere. Now they got a museum there and it's like, ah, I can't, I'm doing such a disservice by not remembering the name of that place. But um, it, it's- I'm gonna look for it. I'm gonna find out what it is now that you put me on track. I'm gonna look for it's it. It's a rare thing that exists still and, and, and it's like, but those moves are rarely made in these situations and stuff mm -hmm. like that. But, right. Yeah. Like, you know, and people don't even know, like in Detroit, man, you can buy like maybe a couple of blocks worth of houses for like $5,000. Yeah, sure. yeah, you know, yeah. You know, but yeah. people don't even realize that because they, they used to live in them when they weren't that and they they can't fathom that they could be true. But the commercial people understood the blighted tactic, the blight tactic, mm -hmm. lower the thing and then buy it wholesale for little or nothing and then rebuild yeah. on it and make a vision of that place for you. Which mm -hmm. That's been going on ever since the Yeah, I, I, I watched them do that in, um, in the Lower East Side of, of Baltimore. They yep. call it Harbor East. You look yeah. at Harbor East now, the whole man and the people that live there now have no idea of like what that like they they yeah. walking dogs at midnight, you know, like <laughs> exactly. Let me um let me let me ask you this. This is switch gears to ask you some some music related um questions. So um in terms of in terms of the group shy, I was looking, you guys wrote and produced predominantly it seems like all your music? Yeah, yeah, we did. We 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 were kids and you know, we just kinda like uh uh, organically had writing ability. I mean, you know, it was just a trip. Every there were a few songs that um, um, certain, like Carl and Mark, brought a few songs to the table that were all like done by them. Period by themselves. Mm -hmm. But mostly, when you would see a person singing in that in any song, they wrote the part that they're singing. Like the MC, like you know, on the track. Like we wrote our own parts and stuff. Like somebody might write a hook, and then we'll feel like this track is. You know, somebody would pick the voices that should be like represented as lead voices, and then right. put order. And then that person would listen to that hook and write their own verse to that, and we'd come back together and then record. Like, and that's yeah. how, like during the storm, a lot of our songs is done like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering, like, um, just because we spoke about it earlier, and we was talking about like, just, but we get royalties from it, and that sustains us to this day. That's the best. Nice. Yeah, because I was, I was gonna say, like, you know, just you were talking about earlier, like the music, the music industry, so. For you having, you know, you guys putting all your blood, sweat, and tears into it and then coming to the table and then having to compromise art that you specifically really put together. That's very different than people who have outside writers, outside producers, because they've already dipped, you know, it's already like, all right, somebody came to me with this idea and then I performed it. But this was you guys' baby. Doing us, so, yeah. What was that like? It was just always a stressful thing, knowing that you had to get some kind of final approval. Like, you always hate that. So even down to our artwork, okay, so it was blackface, but guess what the image we wanted to put on that book, the blackface was? We wanted to have it to where it was, uh, and the art department started the actual art, the dude named Vartan was the art head of the art department. I, I talked to him directly and articulated this concept where it was a tunnel, and it was only lit up by a torch, like a flame torch mm -hmm. in that tunnel, like you saw a hand with a flame, if you can imagine. And the flame illuminates the inner tunnel. And when you see the illuminated tunnel in there, it's just light enough that where you can see on the walls, um, these like hieroglyphics, kind of big hieroglyphics on the wall, four like pharaohs in succession. And then some of the rock done crumbled off the faces and under the crumbled off rock is actual flesh. Like we are right. actually living there underneath those stone hieroglyphs is actually the flesh of the real people living there, which is us. It was our likenesses as pharaohs. Mm -hmm. And that was the original thing for blackface. Then they said we couldn't do that. So then, <laughs> like, you know, like, damn. Too powerful. Shy. <laughs> this concept of shy is an Egyptian, um, is an Egyptian concept that means destiny in human form. And the complementary concept, because they did everything in duality, complementary duality is Renanette, which is female, which is like fate. 
And so together, fate and destiny, masculine and female concepts are the same kind of coin. Right. Be the future, like your fate and your destiny, you know, female. And so down, like down there, we would have shy and meet destiny in human form is the masculine aspect of, you know, of it, from the Egyptian Book of the Dead, coming forth by day. That was what we put as our name. So we wanted to illustrate that Egyptian connection, that hieroglyphic connection, the ancestral Emotep days connection. And, mm-hmm. you know, we did it through there, but that image was too strong. So the next image I thought of was like, all right, let's do a amalgamation of all of our faces. We got different types of brothers in our group. We got Carl, different phenotype type of look, me, Darnell, Mark, we all represent these different looks. So um, I was, I, I came up with an artist kind of like made a design to where the, my half of my nose and half of Darnell's nose, it would be like Carl's eye, then Mark's eye over here, some of my hair right here, Carl's hair, like an amalgam of all of our faces to make one black face. Right. Which was like, you know, metaphorical too, like all like 16 shades of black, this is all good, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so that was too strong. So we ended up just, we did wow. something like that, but it was more like commercial photo. You see the cover black face, you see what it ended up being. Yeah. But, um, and it was cool, I, I like that too, but it was nothing like the pharaonic, who was really trying to express and stuff like that. Like he was really coming out of Howard being too much for them, you know? And then I, I spoke up about, you know, Arsenio, when we went on there, I gave him props for having Minister Farrakhan on, which mm-hmm. like sealed his death coffin on Right there. after that, he was done. Yep. Yeah. And we did the episode right after he did that episode. It was us on there again. Wow. Wow. Like the third time, I got like a lot of Arsenio roads. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's probably when my sister was losing her mind. Like, there you go again. There he is. I gave him a big up for doing that on 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 air and everything. And then so the label president, Randy Phillips, after the show, as soon as I walked off the stage, off the set, he came up to me, shook my hand, and, and, and gave me respect for that. But it was almost like that mafia dime like gesture where they give you a kiss. And it's like, yeah, well, you have to wreck your whole- We're week. watching you, buddy. <laughs> what they did was, look, man, we went down to Florida, to Destin, Florida, and we did this big, big, huge performance for the dis- Uni, which is the distribution arm of Universal, mm-hmm. that, that's gonna shop our stuff, that's gonna man our project. You always wanna ingratiate yourself with the distribution part of the situation. So we do this big show to make sure they get it, the product that we putting out, like they get it. We did an hour long concert with a new product that they're about mm-hmm. to start pushing. And MCA, you know, being MCA, they went into their prop department for the movies, gave us these big golden thrones for chairs, like Egyptian golden. They had the six foot tall models walking around with the incense dressed in the Egyptian, you know, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, right. All that. And we killed it all by all accounts. But because the name album was Blackface, I think because of what I said on Arsenio, all that, they did something that if you're in the industry, you know this is sabotage. They put our album out before they put a single out. Nah, and you ain't gotta be in the industry to know that's sound. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, back then when they actually had record stores, right? They had this little board at the front of the record store and all of them. And it'd be like the, the coming up releases the release, board. Yeah. And it'd be like, you know, the date, the name of the album, the artist, and then the date mm-hmm. that it's supposed to hit the store. Like TLC was coming out when we came out. It was a lot of groups that was giving me to put their stuff out. They was all up there. Shy wasn't nowhere up there. So what was happening is the first maybe three weeks of the album being out, Nobody knew it was out because yeah, it wasn't yeah. a single. And in the stores, the stores, we turned all, all that stuff back to the label. Wow. And we still went gold, even with all that happened, which okay. meant that that would have went platinum out the gate. But it mm-hmm. went gold on the first push of it and stuff like that. Okay. So it was a sabotage movement. It was trying to just write us off. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Is that is that what, what encouraged Shiroglyphics? Yep. 
because we wanted really after that point we was like man we gonna go full out with what we are like you know so and uh, uh, the, 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 I'm just wired that way because I studied Dr. Asa Hilliard, Tony Browder. Mm -hmm. I came in through it from that side, like that Howard. But Darnell, Mark, and Carl—they were Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity members who were steeped in the Egyptology aspect of the whole game in terms of how mm -hmm. they pledge, you know, their perspective, the pledges of uh, um, Sphinxmen for crying out loud, you know, the right. Sphinx. Right? Right. So they're steeped in that too. So we had common interest that way. And Mark named the group Shy based on the fact that he had already named one of his special that and that he pledged to do Darius, named them shot. And um, I don't know who that is. Mm -hmm. But um, <laughs> yeah, so that that that's how it went down with Shy and those things. But we wanted to proclaim that more. We wanted to foreground that more. We was even hoping that marketing-wise, we can get to a point where we can just drop the S-H-A-I and just present the hieroglyphs that meant Shy. That and that stuff, and everybody would just know what that was. Know what that mean, right. Yeah, that's right. Hot. That'd have been hot, for real. So that's that. Hold on, let me see what this is. Questions. Yeah, they want to put a light in, man. Right above where I'm sitting. I'm like, nah, you gotta, you gotta wait, brother. You gotta wait. Yeah, I gotta wait for a little while. Um, um, so I looked. Up, I was looking on YouTube. I mean, the 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 you guys the the smash hit song. Yo, know, it was if I ever fall in love. Yeah, if I ever. Seventy-eight. I looked at YouTube. Seventy-eight million views that's crazy that's 78 million i can't never wrap my head around that that's just so bananas yeah. I, I wonder like did you ever feel pressure to outperform that single because i remember when it came out everywhere i went it was on the record it was played it was everywhere, everywhere. Yeah. everywhere i was even sick of that joint man like <laughs> leave bro like for real you know what I mean? but um no it wasn't like a pressure thing because even with that in our naivety when we first created it before we even got a record deal we created that song and because we thought it was dope in our naivety, we thought it was supposed to blow up and do all that. Like, we actually thought it was supposed to just do what it did. Not knowing that there's so many millions of people ahead of us and before us who had some dope material that just never, for whatever reason, saw the light of day. You know what I mean? Right. We didn't know nothing about none of that. We just knew the song was dope. Everybody we played it for thought it was fly. You can genuinely tell they liked it. Mm -hmm. And because of that, it was going to blow up. We just really thought that. And it did. And so part of us, even though we got into the industry and knew that we was tripping, thinking like that, because it actually did blow up, there was still a part of us that felt like we can always do that. We can always recreate that. You know, there's mm -hmm. happen again. Make sure I but that was that was a um that was just something that we just had built into us coming from Howard. We just had a certain swag and we thought we can always do that, man. You know yeah. That was on your shit. That was yeah. Plus, we you know we wrote our own material, so we didn't really look outside at that point. Right. For others to like really, you know, make our stuff pop. Like we felt like, like a designer, a clothing designer. I'm sure that Versace did dope stuff, but he didn't design nothing doper. Nope. The him he designed the dopest stuff for himself because he knows his body type, he knows his weaknesses, mm -hmm. his strengths, he knows what to accentuate, you know, and better than anybody ever could do outside of his body, he could do that for himself. You right. Know? He felt like that with music, like. 
you can like interpret other people's stuff. Some people do, like Neo can write his butt off. He writes for people like just like they write for themselves. For themselves, like, yeah. yeah. Like Marshall and Brochures. Like a lot of people can yeah. write their butts off, but I bet you if you're a writer, you can always write for yourself better than anybody can write for you. you know what I mean? Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. Let me get this plug. Mm -hmm. Ask me the question, though. I'm that's okay. Uh, right, 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 right. Hey, you say you, 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 you Stop, is, uh, right, right. You, Wait till, wait till you come back so you got him in the frame. You said you said you what? I was gonna ask you, did you ever get a chance to meet Dick Gregory? Oh yeah, a couple of times. I met Baba Dick and um, you know, it wasn't for long and stuff like that. I never got to meet him like how, you know, I knew his daughter, but I met the whole family and what a gifted family. Like Yohanse at the time was like this dumb younger brother, but I met Christian you know, he went to Morgan State, so I was at Howard, so I used to always go down to Morgan State on weekends. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, her older brother, Christian, I met him and was hanging out with him. He, you know, we even had like a little singing group thing for a little while, you know, down there. Uh, nice. But um, nah, he was the influence of Baba Dick was always there. And his birthday is my birthday. We both October the 12th, so it was always this, you know, Thank just. You. That just good Libra energy, energy, yes, son. <laughs> and, and Ayana ended up coming to Howard and she can sing her butt off and she just, you know, it's just a beautiful human being, this period, like outwardly and inwardly and stuff. So and she and I are still friends to this day and stuff like that. Like she was a big influence, you know? And then when I got into the nation and stuff and we started eating one meal a day and, you know, when she would see me after that, like just knowing that we, how we started out and how she told me about all that stuff way back then and we see it manifesting in terms mm -hmm. of my conscious, you know, subjectivities and stuff yeah. like that. As a, as a group, who, who, had, who, who, is it that you wished you had a, a opportunity to work with? Oh, uh, Rafael Sadiq, man. Like, I, I admire that dude. That's dope, I yeah. Like this, man. He's just yeah. so cool. And, and he's soulful, a, real soulful yeah, too, man. Oh my God, like super soulful, like ridiculously so. And yeah. For creative, like he had, he told me, cause I always, we were lucky enough to write our stuff, but I was like, yo, they never put pressure on y'all, like quality control y'all's projects and stuff like that. And he said, man, when we came out with that song, um, had no, um, da, 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 um, have no room, yeah, 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 da, da, da. and um, he said they they didn't have nobody that could recreate that. So because of the success of it, they was just like, whatever that stuff is, just give us some more of that stuff. And that, he right. said that gave them like early on the the creative the like, free lane to just do what they want to do. They have creative control, and it was really contingent upon the success of them from that word to actually do it and have more um, from that one single and, and actually do some more good stuff um, from the label's perspective that allowed them to go forward and always have that creative control. And so yeah. with us, we had to do the first album in two weeks. We had If I Ever already um, as a single because they loved it, it was blowing up, but we didn't have an album yet. So the only thing that allowed us to write our own stuff is they didn't want to sell If I Ever for $9 as a single. They wanted to be able to sell $20 albums with that on it to make more money. So they were like pressed for time to like, yeah, y'all got some more stuff, just give us some more, you know. Yeah. They, they didn't even really anticipate to have no other hits or nothing on it. They just had that one and they just wanted some excuse to just sell that with some stuff. <laughs> but luckily, um, we had acapella songs that was our practice song that we just already had and all we had to do was put music to them. Mm -hmm. But if I ever, Baby I'm Yours and Comforter were the three songs that we had written that we would, that we would do to ourselves. Like that's what we would practice for eight or nine yeah, hours. Yeah. Acapella, we would go to the fine arts department downstairs. They had the little pianos in those padded rooms that you could practice mm -hmm. without, you know, on your own. 
and we would be playing like I hated Baby I'm Yours the way it came out because it came out pop compared to the fact that down in the fine arts department we were singing in acapella with the Rangers and the piano was the only accompaniment and the chords if you really listen to it are Let's Get It On by Marvin Gaye chords that's what wow. Baby I'm Yours is Let's Get It On and, wow. uh, and when it was in that form with just the piano and our vocals it sounded more soulful and I wanted that to be the version to come out, but then it ended up, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know we did the video at Howard, and, you know, so, but I like that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And then right, was, right, right. A vibe to it. It was a vibe, man. It was just totally gone when it came out, but. You know, it was one of the top. We had three top singles. Yeah, and you know, yeah, so nobody else heard that version, so nobody yeah. could judge it like I was. So I just sat my happy butt down and performed it. You know what I'm saying? The the, the song, the place uh, where you belong. How did that end up on the on the uh, Beverly Hills Cop Three soundtrack? Yeah, that was. That's that was I love that song. I wa I watched the movie just to listen to this song. <laughs> Yo, that song. I'm gonna tell you how that song came about and everything too. Like um. And um, this is big ups to Carl. And remember Trey Lorenz? I don't know if y'all remember Trey Lorenz. Yeah. He, Trey Lorenz, yeah, I remember that song, yeah. He co-wrote that song with Carl. And that's one of the songs that um, Carl penned. And that's one of the rare times that we had an outside person co-write with us. Uh, okay. On our first album, we had a, a song, Waiting for the Day or something like that, with Gina Gomez, who, who actually wrote the song Downtown for SWB. She co-wrote on our oh, album, okay. first album. But um, this song, we were in Hawaii chilling, man, doing a concert, ride mopeds all around the town, causing trouble. Like Buster Ron said, causing rambunction throughout the city. <laughs> up in there, right? And, um, you know, we bumped into Trey Lorenz. He was out there. And uh, for those who don't know him out there, Trey Lorenz, he's in a, a Groove Theory song with Amel. Um, I've been doing my own thing. He got a, he got a, oh, 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 oh. he got a whole bunch of stuff he be doing. And he and Trey is yeah. sick with it, sick with it. But he came out with Mariah Carey, like he did some stuff from early Mariah Carey. He came out, boom, boom, and did that too. Um, but he's just an overall talented writer, vocalist extraordinaire. Like, right. with somebody maybe I can compare him to, maybe be like a Carl Thomas or somebody, like hopefully like dope like that. But um, right. different, but that that dope vocals was like no doubt that's dope. Like type right. of thing. That's right. So, so so the movie comes out, and it's I think it's a it's a Sony movie. Some kind of way MCA and Sony agreed, like the soundtrack. Ah, I think MCA had the soundtrack or something like that. Like the okay. artist, the MCA, the Sony, the, the, the movie company, tapping the MCA artist. And um, so we did Place Where, where You Belong. Uh, Matthew Ralston, who uh, used to do all the invoke sexy videos, if they would only use him, like all them videos, the lighting. We finally had a quality video and used him for this one. We made it fly because all our videos was bad cheap. They ain't make no sense, you know, and stuff. But I, you know, they were fly. It was a vibe. Well, our videos were ridiculous. <laughs> I had fun doing them, but man, that Empire video made no sense. But, um, but, uh, but I had fun in there, man. You know, no but, doubt. But, but they let us. Um, so Sorry, the movie came out. The movie came out, and the movie started bombing, started tanking. So Sony and MCA had agreed to co put money into not only just the video. But the actual, um, you know, paying for it to be played and stuff, you know, right. whatever they do, push. Yeah, they push behind it. So when the movie started tanking, the movie company took their money out of the joint venture. So MCA was like, we ain't gonna do all this alone, and and so they took their money out. So our song was like climbing up the charts and stuff like that, maybe twenty eight or something like with a bullet. 
and they just pulled the plug on the whole thing, man. But that was like probably our best video, and it was like the song was dope, man. And the song was dope to me, man. Yeah, that song was dope, man. Like that's yeah. the song we come out to first every concert because it got a little tempo to it. Yeah, it got a little tempo to it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. We do our little thing to that. But like, I love Facebook. That's in my playlist now. I blast that in the whip. <laughs> we, got a chance to go, we got a chance to go to the premiere of the movie. You know, Bellevue's Coffee had this big old premiere. And that's when I met Eddie Murphy, like, for the first time. It was Eddie right there, cold, and all beautiful. And, yeah. You know, our and Wesley Snipes popped up over there, you know. And that was, like, you know, the few times. But I didn't really go out that much. But that was one of my few times being out on the scene. Yeah. Blowing elbows with celebs and all that. I got, we stayed in the studio, man. I ain't, I ain't really, I wasn't no industry party dude. Like, right. Like, my player. Yeah. You know what I mean? But that's how that came about with the Bellius Cop 3, man. How did they keep pushing it? I'm sure it could have gotten to the top 10 because they had a lot of Absolutely. Money. I had them out. It was, a, it was a great song. And like I said, it was up tempo and it just worked. The song worked, man. How, how difficult is it to navigate the interpersonal relationships of a group when you have to work? Oh my God. With people, like to get on the same page with four different people. <laughs> you saw the five heartbeats? <laughs> That's real, bro. That's Male and female. I mean, this is the thing. Like, you, you coming of age with the people. So it's kind of like, you know, you growing up and growth is not, it, growth is asymmetrical, you know what I mean? Different people grow and mature in different ways. Just the two people trying to make it. But four individuals, think about it, we had a common origin at least. We came from Howard together. So that standpoint being Howardites, we had a standpoint with similar- That was your foundation. Yeah, right. So right. At least we were able to kind of like navigate based on that commonality. But there were, there were you know, you know, Darnell and myself being from the New England area, North, or Northeast. I, I grew up in Boston. He grew up in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. But Carl was from New Orleans or Lafayette, and Mark was from Florida, Miami. So geographically, where we actually grew up, me and Darnell was the closest too, in terms right. of like, we were more hip hop head type mm -hmm. location. And then you know, New Orleans had its own unique swag. It's like how DC got its own unique swag mm -hmm. with Go Go and just that you. New Orleans got a thing like that too with the second line. It's just different right there. And then mm -hmm. Miami too, you know, Miami. Right. Like Luke and all, that's a whole different from the rest Culture. of the world. And they don't give a damn if you like it or not. That's they got a thing enough to where they can they can stay in that bubble if they want. So <laughs> we were it kind of manifested that way in the group in a lot of ways. We there was a lot of blending that was done organically for the other three guys because they were alphas. But me and Darnell, we were roommates freshman year. I mean, I came in at 17. That was my first roommate, me and D. And um, we grew up together like that. And so those dynamics that informed each other's relationship were not homogenous. They were different for each person. So I, you know, and so inevitably, invariably, the, the being pushed in a closed space, accelerated and not really knowing people, you got to grow with them and knowing, you know, the only one I really knew was doing them. Right. I had to learn Mark and learn Carl and stuff like that. Yeah, I was coming into their thing really because they was the alphas. I was coming into their thing, you know. And so yeah. it yeah. was like, it, 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 and so you know, it it meshed and melded to a degree, and, and sometimes it didn't it didn't work. Yeah. You know, talk about the kickback concert with groups it's like Seven O Two, Drew oh, Hill, that dude keeping us eating, man. Um, my man from nice. um, what's his name? Um, Young Fly Entertainment. Yeah, young fly, yes sir. Yeah, that dude, man, he he he, he brilliant, man. He he got made. He made sure he got the '90s groups consistently. Mm -hmm. Got the venues, wasn't mm -hmm. playing around, wasn't bull jiving. Really understood that, hey man, we could do this, man. People, people want to see this nostalgia. This is people's coming of age experiences. This is like 
the soundtrack to their growing up. You know what yes, I mean? Yes, so sir. You're going emotionally attached, and it's good music. So even some of the new kids on the block can can appreciate like the it. '90s that hear the '90s and Bruno Mars doing '90s type albums to show yeah. them what he, they feel like. Yo, I like that style. How come they don't do that now? You know, they come to the shows too, and so these shows have been dope. And then the artists are like everybody's. Everybody got songs as people's favorite songs, and so it's like yeah, it's, it's one big reunion. Thing. And we all get to eat, you know what I mean? And it's just a fun thing being on the road with people that you grew up basically with since you was in your twenties. And we still doing it and we can kind of celebrate through each other on the low, like yo, it's good. That's to be great. Out. Yeah. That's super dope. That's right. That's super dope. Um we've we've had a number of entertainers on the podcast and uh, um, I'm gonna ask you a question I always ask them. Did the music business make you become disenchanted with actually making music? Hey, look, before I dig I'm going to digress a second, but don't let me go too far. <laughs> I don't know if this organically is the case or if this is just your setup, but that Karis one joint and that Jay-Z joint, those are the only two hip-hop artists we ever worked with, and it's them two right there. Mm-hmm. And um, did you, did you, did you? You worked oh, with Karis one? No, I didn't do that strategically. We did a joint, look it up, it's called Destiny. Yeah. We, when uh-huh. we was on the independent in Baltimore, we was on Big Play Records after MCA. This dude named Michael Jackson was a wide receiver for the Baltimore Ravens. Mm-hmm. Started the independent, yep. and we signed to his label called Big Play. It was on Biddle Street, right between you. Yeah, Biddle, yes sir. Yeah, it was down in the hood, like right. I lived off of I lived off of St. Paul. Biddle was right there. <laughs> right, so we was right there, and we made um, we paid Chris. He came down. Darnell created the track. Chris actually liked the track. Mm-hmm. The song was called Destiny. And KRS had never done a song with an R&B group ever because he wasn't trying to do more R&B I stuff. I remember it now. So, yeah. And, and like, I remember when Tigger played the instrumental on, on his show, The Basement, on BT, like Wu-Tang and them came in, rock to the track and stuff like that. But the track is like saying something. It's, it's called Destiny. And Shy means destiny. The B section says, got to make it through the other side. Change the quality of human life. It's just our destiny. And then the hook goes, he's just destiny <laughs> manifest through you and me so we can all live peacefully spreading love eternally boom, boom. you know what i'm saying high in the hot sky with shy and chris word out you know chris coming up boogie boogie we gonna pop Yes, son. Just think about Clinton in there. And then Jigger, we did a song with Jay-Z. Be alone. The remix to I Don't Wanna Be Alone Tonight. We got with Marley Mall. In each of these efforts, we paid these people out of our own pockets because the label didn't see the vision. Wow. So MCA didn't want to mess with us with that. But we paid Marley Mall, who was a head DJ at Hot 97 at the time, who was like, yo, I got somebody I can throw on it for you. Mm -hmm. He he said, yo, I got this kid. And so at the time, Jigger had just did the song with Foxy Brown with that. Ain't no, ain't like, no, one I've got. Yep. You know, so he put Jigger on there. Jigger did three verses on our jo- on that joint with us, man. Um, yeah. tonight and killed it. You know, at times you could find me in the city center. Yo, that was a New York anthem, man. That anthem. was a New York anthem. And MCA was so <laughs> just inept, they didn't even do a video with Shy and Jay Z for that. Like, because why? Because they didn't pay for it. Like, they felt like. You know, there was no right. bullshit. <laughs> they don't see the vision. They never see the vision until the vision comes out, and now they want to backtrack. But that's that's what I mean about becoming disenchanted because you create this wonderful piece of art, and yep. then right. it is you don't you can't get the label to get behind it. Yep. So it, it, we didn't feel disenchanted for making music though, because that's something we would have done for free mm-hmm. in our heart. Like music is some stuff that's just in us, man. And, and you know, that's just something that, like I said, we still the artists creating art. It just so happens that. When you 
in a situation bounded by a contract, now you become an artist that's creating product. Mm -hmm. So the only difference is you get enchanted with the product creation situation, but you're gonna always create art. I got songs now that I've been creating, waiting to drop something. Right. I got a song, I got an album. I'm only gonna do one album ever in my life, but solo, you know, under the auspices of Shy. Mm -hmm. Not a way, right. that, but just because Kane right. asked me to do it. And Darnell was like, man, do an album. And so I was like, all right. And it's gonna be called the Garfield Bright Experience because it's gonna be okay. so eclectic. It's got so many different, different things. That Concepts and commentaries. Music, yeah, oh, it's, so, man. It's, it's really awful. Can't wait. You know, you're gonna hate some of it, love some of it, but it's gonna be enough in there to be like the stuff you love would be enough to entrench yourself. In your I'll hold you in. Yeah. So it's, yeah, I got some crazy stuff, but you know, it'll never stop, man. People made out of this, man. We, I love music and melody and too much to just, I'm too creative. I'm too good with words and concepts. That's right, man. It's, it out of my soul. Like, it can't just right. So That's what's up, man. Even if nobody ever hear it, I'm, I'm cutting music. You so know, bes besides besides music, what's, what's, what's next for you? Oh, man, too much? I don't know what the hell I think I'm doing. I got, I'm, I'm like, I ain't that ambidextrous, right? Um, and I, and I suck at, I always say I suck at multitasking, but here I go doing all these things. So right now on deck, okay, I, okay, when I got my PhD in 2018, I took a year off to just get, you know, that stuff. Like, mind you, I got the award for the, for the best um, dissertation coming from my cohort. I got acknowledged by the department. And then um, um, I had a 4.03 grade point average for that, for that period for my dissertation, my doctoral degree. So I really bust my ass. I really was committed. And that kind of dedication, you lose friends, family don't understand. It's a crazy kind of commitment because you got to go to conferences. You got to read, devour huge swatches of material and articles and books. Yep. Like your life is just crazy. And being coming from a music entertainment kind of like area into mm -hmm. that, the people who know you from the, the artist side of you don't quite know the, the stuff it takes to be a PhD. So they remember you in that mode of thatness and you saying, if you ain't making no phone calls in two, three weeks and stuff like they thinking that you just like, you know, they don't really know. Like, so yeah. you lose it. So sacrifice is happening. Boom, boom, boom. So I took a year off just to get myself just back centered, man. It was frazzled. I didn't realize until I kind of stopped that I was kind of like, oh, I need to chill. Just take time. My sleep schedule, I was waking up every morning at three. I felt like I had PTSD or something like that. Like on you did. Like, you said you said we all crazy. Yeah, <laughs> we so, all got PTSD. <laughs> I mean, I don't, genetically, genetically, right? Genetically. Right? So I, I just kind of chill. But in that time period, I wrote a book that I had been keeping in my head for like ten years. Mm -hmm. Lotus, three thousand thirteen. Lotus, three thousand thirteen. And the premise of it is in the year three thousand and thirteen, hip hop is worldwide truly believed to be a white cultural product invented by white people. Wow. And Ooh. they use it as a technology for like civilization building, like the X factor found within the hip hop vibrational structures powers the, the geodetic grid of the earth, like the ley lines. They got a way for it to power the ley line to create a, a vibe of hip hopness that transfers onto the, the architectural structures and all, you know, so the rich can be more attracted to the magnetic properties of hip hop through these formalized structures that they mm -hmm. transferred it over to. Anyway, the power behind it is the prisoners that are in there that are black, that they hook cathodes up to their brain, still in the hip hop essence form and their vocal frequency and powers it. Anyway, it's a thing that, it's like hip hop meets Lord of the Rings and, and, and Harry Potter, but in a urban context instead of in that 
old ancient right. Goth, gothic yeah, type you know, background. You know, Victorian thing. It's in an urban setting. So and so I finished it. I just did the audio book. I just like recorded it. Nice. I have my son, uh, my twin sons who are producers in their own right, Grammy nominated as producers for Post Malone and different people like that. Oh, Tyrick and Garfield. They're gonna do the cinema, the score up under it and stuff like that. Nice. Now that song Destiny is gonna be like snippets of that. that ding, 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 ding. That's gonna be the segue between the chapters. And the last chapter is called The Meat Shall Inherit the Earth, where the prisoners finally, it's become not, they've been like the CIA drummed up these prison escapes so they can create momentum to where they have it legislated that the prisoners can never get visitation. So hundreds of years passed like that where the prisoners didn't get visitation. They created something called a penal class. And well, instead of them becoming more savage, because they weren't touching the outside world, they actually became more civilized. Mm. But they weren't exposed to the craziness that we deal with out here. They were yeah. kind of isolated. And their humaneness kind of poked through because they didn't have those examples. And so when they finally, the day came when the protagonist beat the antagonist and all that, they set up a new paradigm instead of, instead of being on top and, and doing what was done to them in terms of the paradigm, just making white power become black power. Mm. They switched the whole paradigm to make it a win-win. And, um, and Destiny, like it says, the song, the B section says, gotta make it through the other side. Change the quality of human life. It's just our destiny. And then the hook comes in. So that ma it matches the story. Like, mm -hmm. right, the it parallels and, right. It says things ain't what we thought they'd be or what we thought we'd see. This is our destiny. That's the outro. And that joint matches. Like, damn, these people get on my nerve. That won't, be, that. that won't be 3013. That may be sooner than 3013. <laughs> I know, right? Might be 10 years from now. Yeah. Wow. I don't. Yeah, but that, that, that's what I'm doing. I'm doing that book, um, Lotus. And I'm, I'm just, I just got it to where I wanted to be. And, um, but I'm also, I went to a school on the campus of Alabama State University when I was in the um, first and third grade. Mm -hmm. And um, it was like an experimental school that was structured in these real dope ways. It had a whole thing tailor made for research for the students to come over because early childhood education was just popping right back in the days of 78. Mm -hmm. And Alabama State, which was a teacher school at the first, they were um, on the cutting edge of early childhood education. So anyway, I went to the school and an inordinate amount of people who went to that school came out as PhDs, lawyers, heads of corporations, a little black school in Montgomery. Right. And so I, I feel like I need to revisit that that school and do the research and actually like highlight that as a, not only a part of my story, but deal with that school because it's some special teachers and people that came in a culture that was generated and see what that was. Much like my dissertation, I was gonna use some of the same tactics because I didn't ask straight, ask straight up questions for my dissertation. I did these elicitation pieces. I'll be like, yo, your experience as an artist in the industry, if you could whittle the whole experience down to a sound, what would that sound be? <laughs> and they would probe their mind and say it and then have to tell me why. And it would make them conjure up this narrative and stuff that I could never find out if I just developed a question. Yeah. I would do the sound, I would do a word, and I would do a color to make them do that through. And between those three items that they was Right. A lot of stuff out of them, like in that way. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm gonna do the same thing with this book. Right. So I've already got the layout, the chapter flow, and a lot of the, the, 
the theoretical framework I'm gonna use because I'm gonna make it a quasi-research piece. And then um, me and Darnell are getting ready to do this podcast. And uh, I think we're gonna call it In the Building Building. And, um, and so it's gonna be out of Charlotte where we're gonna interview a lot of the old head artists and stuff like that. But really the four phases I talked about that my dissertation was dealing with, yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna take them through them four phases and what that looked like for them. That's so right. Hear about a dude talking about like, well, one, what she thought she was supposed to be before she even signed a deal, like how she saw herself as an artist, like what you Trial and error, right. You know what I'm saying? Like, let me hear what that was supposed to sound like for you, like how you thought you were supposed to be before the label got to you, mm-hmm. and how much freedom you retained. And, and then from there, you know, tell me like, you know, what lessons did you hit, get slapped in the face with early when your artistry bumped right into the label and when you saw a contrast and who won that one and what did it look like? Like all these stories, I'm gonna get them out of these, you know, and then, you know, we're gonna talk about it like that. And so. I, I'm gonna do a podcast based off, off that. Yep. Then I'm gonna hit him with a, a, a cross section of just bombard them with situations and give them no time to think at the end of it and see what they think about, like maybe issues of the day and different things and just boom. Yeah. So it's gonna be a cool little piece, man. I'm, 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 I'm getting that started. We just got some investors that are interested in making it happen. Nice. Last thing is I'm trying to get a grant because um, 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 it's called the. Um, let me see, HBCU Building History Project. And I wanna go to all of the HBCUs, at least on the Eastern Seaboard, and um, and do like a documentary-esque type of thing where I'm walking, I'm taking you through a, 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 a tour through the campuses, but I'm stopping at the buildings and I'm highlighting the person that's named, the building is named after, I'm giving you the full history of who that, I'm letting you know who that was. Um, and I'm taking nuances that you have never known about that person on top of the fact that you didn't even know who that was to begin with. Begin but with, right. How that important to that university. And so when you come to that university, you literally build in history on top of the shoulders of those people that build history. But it's also building is a double thing because it's the building itself, mm-hmm. the history. So it's like the building history project. And so I'm gonna do that for all, going all the way up. Um, and then basically on the uh, freshman weeks at the universities, they can show that. I'm gonna take you to high schools for those those college-bound um, seniors when they try to figure out where they want to go to school. Yeah, they that's can, hot. Those people in the advisory can pop that in and show them, you know, different schools through that. You know, do this cranky character Garfield, this artist mm-hmm. talking about, yo, this is Ernest Edward Just, you know, Edward Just and blah blah blah. You know, really laying it down. This is Douglas Hall on Howard's County. This is Douglas. Now Frederick Douglass is blah blah blah. You know, and really right. Down and move on. And but they named this building after him. Blah blah blah. And across the way, you know, and, you know this. Really right. it like that, you know, do all the campuses, man. And that way, H- HBCU like, tour guide, bro. Yeah, you know, but those people who are just sitting there aging and nobody knows who, the, who they are, there's, there's a reconnection with these kids coming in where they're conscious of that building they're stepping into as a real yeah. person who, at their age, was doing big things and now they're memorializing this building. And you about to walk through these doors and it's more legacy added value. You know the meaning of it. Right. right. Yeah, That's you, right. you, you yeah. coming in there too, just like they did back in the day. And look what they did. Right. You feel you a part of the journey. Place. You part of this. Yeah. So I want to do that. So those are the things I'm working on right now. And I have I have one last question. I don't know if Rob, did you have any other you have any other questions, Rob? I can sit and talk to him. He's an air like man. This is the yeah, God body yeah. man. I can sit and talk to him it's all like, day, man. Right, <laughs> bro. You already know, man. Just um, I just wanted to ask you um, lastly, just you know, just like what you were saying. The question I always ask at the end too is like, what, what what was the lesson learned from being in the the music industry? Like, if there's one thing you could take away from it that now, based on having been through it, that now you know, you're like, if I would have known that in retrospect, I would have done this differently. Yeah, well, 
it's a it's a slave mentality that you end up coming out of because if you get in there, you're actually not really going to the root of what is actually happening when you sign a deal. Like you are agreeing to place your creativity and your value as a as a artist that's attached to your value as an intellectual, attached to your value as a human. All those are inseparable. You put all that to a basket and allowing that to be commodified and then sold at terms that aren't, you know, in your best interest on purpose. Almost like the interest convergence that the Brown versus Board of Education thought that proximity to whiteness was gonna make their value better. Because mm -hmm. it's the same thing when you sign to a label because they taking your masters. Oh, the fact that right, they taking all your masters. stuff. They got masters and slaves in the, in the, in the, even in the way they do music back in the day. Mm -hmm. It was a master and a slave. Like, those terms is <laughs> And it's like you are a part of that and you're acquiescing and you're trying to, everything you do from that positionality structurally is to be validated by a higher authority on purpose. You put mm -hmm. yourself, so I would be independent. And um, now it's easier than ever because social media, because of the way it's set up now, you know, you can get a cult following, you can get an audience. And if you're selling 10,000 records, that's a failure by label standards. But if you're selling it personally, your bank account gonna be nice if you sell it yeah, at 10,000. Yeah. And you'll be able to sustain yourself, re-up, and then identify a target crew that's actually right. with you. Right. You go with them and then it expands. And so I would have done that. I would have, I would have like kept my time. Cause if I ever, see if I ever, <coughs> was blowing up before we signed a record deal. Mm -hmm. Record radio stations were playing If I Ever um, and adding to the playlist before, we was charting before we signed a deal. Wow. But we thought we had to have a label to push it. Because to push yeah. it. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. But it already had organic juice in something called P1s, which were, the radio stations were tiered. It was P1s, P2s, and P3s. The P1s were the big trend stations. The new mm -hmm. like WPGC was a P1. It has sister stations, and then the P2s copied their playlists. So as soon as you were added to that P1, you were getting radio rotation and all these radio stations simultaneously because of that. <laughs> and we were starting and being straight, but we didn't realize what that really could have been if we could have, you know, like manipulated yeah. something a little bit more and stuff like that. So two things is it always comes down to the music. You gotta, I don't care what it is, the music gotta be dope. People gotta feel what you're doing. I don't care how crafty you are and navigating if the music is wacky you ain't don't matter the music <laughs> gotta be good and then you know and then then you gotta be strategically visually trying to always control your art um in terms of how you commodify it so mm -hmm. you 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 control that and you can you can go to sleep at night knowing that it was in your hand the way you did that as opposed yeah. to you just subject to something like they could have told us what like they did our first video man I bought my own clothes to the video shoot because I felt like they was gonna they put me in some ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> they had these dudes, man, these photographer dudes taking pictures, and they was just wrapped with clothes on it. And I was looking at that rack like, nah, <laughs> like, nah. <laughs> man, I went through the rack and I just tried my best. If you look at the video, I tried my best because I knew how history, I knew how, man, I knew how it is in the future. You're gonna look back on the past like, what was I thinking? So in the moment, I was like, yo. I'm gonna try to pick the most basic, simple thing that over time won't look like it's such a time trendy piece. Yeah. And so, I, but the thing was the colors they had for us. Like my, I had these green pants on, man. It was silk. My stuff showing all out all over the place. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. They oh, turned y'all on the sex symbols. <laughs> and I didn't even like. I wasn't even. I was. I had a broke hand in that video still, man. Like, I, they had, I, they took my cast off because they didn't want me to have a cast in the video. My hand, if you look at it like that, mom, 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 and I do like that. If you look at my right hand, you see a big old 
big puffy like like a bear claw puffy oh, thing right there and stuff. But but yeah, I would say you know just I took away the fact that if you can control your situation as an artist, do that mm -hmm. at all costs. Yeah. And um, especially now, you can actually go. We can actually do it, right? You can really go to the marketplace now. Mm -hmm. On your own, directly from you to it. Boom, no yeah. NR, none of that. If you hot, mm -hmm. they gonna like, you gonna get grabbed, you gonna get love. Yeah. It's like that, time is like that now and stuff. Yeah. And so go that route. Don't feel like you gotta use somebody else to validate what you are doing. If you don't even yeah. do that. Man. Great that's, point, that's, a great point right there. That's the part though, like the, the commodifying piece of it. So they, they commodify it, but then they give you pennies on the dollar. Oh. What, they've, what they've commodified and they've made millions of dollars off of. That was one thing we were kind of lucky about in that part. We we had a better than average rookie deal, I call it. Like our new artist deal, our rookie deal. It wasn't like Dak Prescott, like how he was just like, it was, <laughs> it was, it was, it was like we had some kind of cash. We had a little better than what we were supposed to be getting as rookies. <laughs> um, then when we renegotiated, we, we used Shaq Kim from Flavor Unit because we were signing a lot of for um, management mm -hmm. for our second album. And Shaq Kim came in and lifted him a new asshole for him. Good. Put the fear of God in them dudes, man, because he knew what he was talking about. They couldn't use terminology that was over his head, mm -hmm. but he was street. So he was coming at them like Big Red from the Five Heartbeats, boy. <laughs> it was like, they couldn't do nothing but just, just sit back and just give him, you know. Acknowledge, right. Yeah, we got us a real good deal, man. Better than what we was probably supposed to get for our second album based on the fact of how If I Ever Did and stuff like that. Yeah, nice. So we, we, that was, we did get, in the fact that we wrote our own music, like, we get our the splits that we get now from our royalties from those meetings is with the splits that Better. we get. That's good to hear. So that he we owe him probably more than what we paid him, you know, based on that how he did that, man. Yeah, that's good. And I still can eat during these crazy times without no shows, you know, the royalties. And now, man, now they done speak like Universal Music Publishing. They done did the royalties, but they give them to you four like quarterly now. It ain't like two uh, times a year like it used to be. You can wait. Like Raekwon said, waiting on these royalties. Like waiting, waiting on babies. Waiting on babies. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, yes, it, it ain't like waiting on babies no more, man. You know what I'm saying? It's like four times a year. And you can get an advance off your own royalty each quarter. Wow. So you can pay yourself based on what's accrued. They got this little window, like a dashboard, and it show you in real time. Like you wake up tomorrow morning and click and look. And it'd be a different amount of money amount in there. That, that's that, nice. The, the crew, yeah, you get to see the crew in the real yeah. time. Like, oh, shoot, I got an extra rack in there now. Like, hey, I'm good, son. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, you know, so you, you can work it and stuff. But that's only possible because we wrote our own material, man. So I would advise people, you know, collabing is dope, do that. But make sure you also balance it out with definitely- Your own stuff. If you can do that, if you have that ability or, you know, even if you believe in yourself, man, because ability is like, what's that? Like, you, you can, it, the key is losing nothing in translation between the expression and the raw feeling and what comes out on the pen. And it ain't got to be sophisticated. You just got to, the feeling of that just got to match what you're feeling in there. Yeah. If it ain't no fat on that, if it's one-to-one -one enough, people probably going to feel that. Mm -hmm. Like, I didn't like going through Thugs and Harmony when they first came out. With all that, yeah. I was like, eh. But... I could see that they was really feeling what they were doing. It was doing, yes, sir. And they believed in it so much that I was like, I didn't question whether or not it was dope to people. I knew that people probably loved that. It, it was just a sweet thing you. from the hip hop that I was, you know, from the rock him lies and the you know, boom the back. Yeah, was, it was a boom back. That wasn't that for me, but you know, okay, sing songy. You know, I had, I heard a group called Freestyle Fellowship that was doing stuff like that before them, like that mm -hmm. was dope to me too. 
But after a while, though, even me, I jumped on the bandwagon because, you know, after a while, I started understanding some of the intricacies the of what they were doing. And I was like, yeah, let's go. Let's go. <laughs> put that, put that <laughs> back. Let me you know put that in there. When I first, first, first heard it, I was like, ah, but it grew on me. And then I realized, like, ah, oh, nah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm. I think I'm in the same boat. It probably took me a. It probably took me about a year. But then after a year went by, I was like, wait a minute. Like, yeah, there's yeah. something actually there. And they came out with the first of the month and stuff, man. It was like it's the first of the month. <laughs> I was ahead back then because Crucial Conflict had the hand right. in the middle of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All that stuff was, you know, I don't know. Those sounds are great, man. Yeah. Those sounds are so great. Well, thank you for agreeing to do this. I appreciate it. You know, yo, thank you for gracing us. You talk with us. With your presence, brother. I appreciate this, man. This is like this one for the books, bro. Y'all are dope, man. I wish you know much continued success and everything. If you if there's ever some kind of other issue or spinoff of this that y'all do and y'all wanna talk about some other issues or something or whatever, you know, I'm down.